0: Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Um, find ourselves on our experiencing God journey. Uh, if you remember in week one, the exhortation was to remain. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does he say? He says, you need to abide. You need to remain in me. The one who remains in me and I in him, he can. he's the one that can produce much fruit. So we remain in Christ. Week two, the exhortation was to trust completely. Uh, trust completely in God. There's, there's a lot of things in this world that we can trust in. The scripture says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of of the Lord our God. And so uh, as we remain, as we trust in him, uh, this morning I believe we come to this place of what's the motivation behind all of that. See for many or for what can, uh, we can kind of find ourselves in, if you will, is that the motivation to remain in the vine can often feel like obligation and the motivation to trust God completely can feel like coercion. Uh, it, it, the, the the point is not that we just go through the motions and we feel this obligation or this coercion into this relationship, but the motivation is love. If I could summarize today's message, it would simply be this. You and I were created to experience God in a love relationship. It, it's It's very basic. It's very simple, but yet it's so profound, isn't it? That we are created to experience God. God designed us. He breathed life into you to have a love relationship with Him. Now, as we study this, experience God. If you're in the actual Bible studies, you've learned this, but uh, I want to I want to bring this to, to the forefront this morning. Is there seven realities? to experiencing God. The first one is that God's at work. He's always at work. Everywhere he's at work. We, Even when we don't see it, God is at work all around us. The second one is this, that God pursues a continuing love relationship with us, with you, that is both real and personal. God's pursuing this with you. He longs to have this intimate love relationship with you, and it's described as both real and personal. Now, as I was leading our our group that I'm a part of uh, on Wednesday night, as we were talking about this one statement, this one sentence, this just kept coming up in my mind is that for some of us, the reality is we would declare, we would say, yes, I have a relationship with God, but it's not so real. We know that's the language of which we're supposed to say that if we're a Christian, yes, I have a relationship with God. But if we were truly honest with ourselves, it's not so real. (laughs) It's in name only, I guess, is probably how you would describe that. For others, perhaps it's real, like you know, it's not just name only, but it's not so personal. In other words, we have, we would say we have a relationship with God, but we, we honestly keep God at a distance a little bit. We, we're, we're, we're all in, kind of. We don't really want to deal with the, 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 the deep recesses of our soul and of our life because man, like, that's just uncomfortable. So when we say that it's personal, we say it's personal, but is it really personal? And the truth of the matter is, is this is the relationship that God designs and God desires of our lives. In Matthew chapter 22, we see this come to the the center of this conversation that Jesus has with some religious Pharisees. Now in chapter 2 of Matthew, what we see, if you were to read the whole chapter, what you'd find is there's three different instances, three different moments where uh, some people come to Jesus with a question and the question is designed not to really get an answer. The question is designed to trip Jesus up. They're they're trying to, to trying to get Jesus to say something uh, that they can use against him. Whether they can use it against him and uh, him breaking the law, if you will, or if they can get the crowds to turn away from Jesus, they're they're trying to trip Jesus up and get him to say something that he might regret. So we have this moment, this, what we're going to read is the third question, and it comes from the Pharisees. Look at verse 34. It says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. So in other words, question number two was from the Sadducees. Question number one was the Pharisees. Question number two were the Sadducees. And you're like, what's the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees? There's A little bit of difference. One is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Meaning this, that when life was over, when you die, that's it. There's no more life after death, if you will. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so their question was try to get Jesus to trip up and uh, acknowledge that there's no resurrection or say something about marriage that he shouldn't have said. And so that's that question. And so Jesus responds in such a way. When they ask this question, where they literally have no response because he's so profound in his answer that there's nothing that they can say in response to it. And so in verse 34, the Pharisees had heard that. and So they come together and they try again because question one was from the Pharisees. Verse 35. And so one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question, ready, to test him. So the question in of itself isn't really a bad question, but we know the motivation is to test him. And so here's the question, verse 36. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Which command in the law is the greatest? Now, this is a very interesting question for a lot of different reasons. And I think you and I, we would, we would want to know the answer to this too, wouldn't we? Of all the different laws, of all the different commands, which one is the most important? We want to make sure that we do that one, don't we? And so what we find is historians tell us that the Pharisees, they would get together and they'd argue about this question. They'd have debate, which one is the most important? There were 603 commands. Listen, you and I, we struggle with just the 10, don't we? But, but they had kind of expanded it out to their 603 commands, and the Pharisees had divided them. 365 of them were negative ones, ones you shouldn't do. 248 of them were positives, ones that you should do. And so they had this long list, and it was almost like you can just kind of imagine this Excel spreadsheet, right? Where it's like just this massive long list and, and they're sitting down and having these meetings and they're trying to sort. All right, which one should this be in like the top 20, you know, top, top 50? How, how do we divide these out? Isn't that something that we do? Whether consciously or not, we say, well, as long as I'm not breaking this commandment, I'm, I'm probably okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be all right. And what we find is we find ourselves doing this comparison where we look at others and we say, well, man, listen, they're on on a whole other level of sin than I am because their sin is against these other commands that I don't commit. And and we find ourselves in this comparison game. And so this question comes to Jesus, which of these commands is the greatest, most important? So notice Jesus' answer in verse 37. He said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two Commands. Here we have it. Jesus gives the answer. And if you notice, this is fascinating to me. If someone were to come to ask me this question in this moment without me understanding this context, I'd have to say, oh, goodness, that's a great question. Let me think about that. Let me get back to you. Let me do some research. And what we find is that Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He knows the answer. It just comes right off his tongue, and he gives this answer. Now, what I want to do is I want to, I want to offer up three truths for us to help us understand what Jesus is getting at and how we can walk in obedience better in this reality. The first one is this, that we need to understand the primacy of our relationship with God, that it is first, that it is center, that it is above all other, other things is your love relationship with God, the primacy of your love relationship with God. Now, we don't use that word primacy very much, and so I was encouraged to maybe define that for us. And um, here's my definition. Here's my way of understanding primacy. It's both priority and position. It's it's elevating the, the significance of it, but also making sure it becomes first. And obviously, that which is most important does become first in our lives, doesn't it? But this is my understanding of this. It's the greatest and most important. This is how Jesus describes it. Verse 38, this is the greatest and most important command, the primacy of it. It must be first and foremost in your life. What is it? This love relationship with God. So when Jesus answers this question, as I said, he's not thinking long and hard about this. It just rolls right off his mouth as if he's heard it before and he has heard it before. It actually comes from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, this is where Jesus gets his answer. And so if you've got your Bible and you want to flip over there, you can. But if not, it'll be on the screen. But in Deuteronomy 6, this is the context of it. God is speaking through Moses to the people, and they're about to enter into the the promised land. And so there's some words that are given to them. It says this, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One. Now verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving to you today are to be what? In your heart. They're to be in your heart. And so what we have in this moment is what is called the Shema. And a good Hebrew at this point in their life would repeat this verbally two times a day. This is essentially the scripture memory verse for their life, all right? It's essential. This is core of who they are, and it's to be repeated over and over again on a daily basis. It begins with this word, listen, listen, Israel. The word listen, it means to hear, but it's not just a hearing information, right? You come here to church and you hear, you are listening to a message, Well, you know this, I hope, that it's not just about hearing information that gets into your mind and then you just forget it. It's hearing information that then leads to action. So this is the context. This is the understanding. Well, what is it that we're putting into practice? It's this acting on the statement that the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what does he mean when he says the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Is he talking about how many are God? I think there's a sense in which he's getting at that a little bit. We know that God is the only true God. There's only one God, he and he alone. Now we hear about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that confuses us. And we're like, is there three gods? No, it's one God, right? The triune God. They're entering into a land and they're going to be encountering people who worship multiple gods, Okay, they're polytheistic, and so they would say that there's lots of different gods, lots of different options. You can worship as many or as all of that you want. There's many religions today that hold to that as well. And we honestly live in a world and a culture that would say that one God can't be true because everyone kind of has their own path, their own way to going about this. And so reality is that this statement is a statement of exclusivity. And that's kind of a bad word in today's society, isn't it? That we are claiming that there's only one true God and the one true God is the God of the Bible. And if we're going to follow the God of the Bible, then we're going to do what he says. And what he says is most important is that we walk in, have, experience a love relationship with him. Now, it's interesting the context over in Deuteronomy 6, because if you keep reading throughout this chapter, you come to verse 10. So I'm going to read verse 10 through 15. It's going to be on the screen. It says this When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses, Full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, notice what he says be careful, be careful, be careful what not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So what? Fear the Lord your God. Worship him. Take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Who is the Lord? The Lord our God. The Lord is what? One, he says. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Now imagine this. God in all of his wisdom and all of his might and all of his sovereignty and all of his understanding and all of his knowledge understood full well that mankind as they enter into this land full of provision, full of plenty, full of all of this stuff and they experience all of these blessings, they experience all of these possessions, they experience all of these provisions God understood that man's heart is easily deceived and they would begin to love the blessing rather than the blesser. And so what does he say before they even go in? May this be on your heart. Say it with me daily. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's not necessarily only talking about how many gods are are there. What he's saying is, do you and you alone love God and God alone? Listen, there's a temptation coming for you that you're going to be pulled away by the blessings of this land and the blessings of this world to begin to love those things more than me who gave them to you. Don't we live in that world today where we would say, yes, I have a love relationship with God, but yet sometimes we love the blessing more than the blesser. And what God is doing for us this morning in this text and what God is doing in these words that Jesus speaks is he's bringing us back to what is primary. That Jesus in a love relationship with him matters most. Listen. Our love relationship with God must be our greatest priority, and it must come first over everything else in our life. Over all other relationships, all over, over all other activities, over all other desires. Listen, God, is, it says in Deuteronomy, is a jealous God, and he does not and will not share you with anything else. Now, we look at that and we think, well, that's a little harsh, isn't it? It's not harsh when it comes to marriage. If you're married in this room, you're not sharing your bride with anybody else. You're not sharing your groom with anybody else. Parents, you're not sharing your kids with anybody else. You cling to that which you love, and you are not allowing anybody else to take it from you. And this is what Scripture says. God is a jealous God, and he longs for you. He does not want you to share him with other things. So in Deuteronomy 6, Moses shores it up by saying these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. You see, the difference between relationship and religion is this. Religion is, stays in our heads. It's all intellectual information. But relationship, a loving relationship with God is when it moves from our head into our heart. And that's when life change happens. And that's when we experience God as he's created and designed us to experience. Listen, does your love relationship with God take precedence over everything else? Is it prime? Is it primary in your life? Number two, we see in Jesus' answer the scope of our love relationship with God. The scope of it. In other words, what is the implication of this? What's the, what's the scale? What's the scope of what this looks like for my life? In Matthew 22, if you look back at his answer in verse 37, he says, Love the Lord your God. And if you've got a pen, you want to underline it in your scripture, do this. With all. With all. My translation, it says it three times. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your mind. This idea of with all, it means Everything. It's not a portion of, it's not a part of, it's not even 90% of, it's not like, well, I've gotten most of it, I've given most of my life. He says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This idea of what does it mean to give and love God with your heart? The heart in that time was the seat of emotions. The soul was the Volition, it's the desire, the will of your life. The mind, it's your intellect, your cognitive ability. And so what Jesus is saying is with all of your emotions, with all of your desires, with all of your intellect, with all of who you are, you lean in on this love relationship with God. If you go back to the Deuteronomy account, you notice that Moses includes a different word there. It's the word strength. Love the Lord your God with all of your strength heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. In the Hebrew, the word for heart was both the thinker and the feeler. It was both the intellect and the heart, right? And so there was one word for that. And so Moses adds in this one called strength. And when we see that, we're like, what does that mean? Do I, I love God with my muscles, right? Like like that's a that's a weird concept to think about. I, I love God with my strength. Some of us love ourselves because of our muscles. Some of us don't have muscles and it's not a temptation, right? And so we have this reality where God says, love me with all of your strength. What does that mean? Well, if you really go back and research that phrase and that statement of loving God with all your strength, another way to look at it would be loving God with all of your resource. All of your resource. Their strength was their resource to provide and to, to care for themselves and to function and to live. And so what God's saying is, you love me with all of your strength emotion. You love me with all of your intellect. You love me with all your desires, and you love me with all your resource. Everything that you have, you love me with it. You demonstrate your love for me with all of it. Every part of who you are is created and designed to enjoy this real personal loving relationship with Jesus, every part of it. I often describe it this way to people. Imagine your life broken up into different buckets. You have different parts of your life. You have your family bucket, if you will. You have your relationship buckets. You have your work bucket. You have your finances bucket. You have your extracurricular activity bucket. Those of you who are in school, you have your school bucket. And on and on we could go. All the different categories, if you will, of your life, you have these different buckets that represent your time and represent your life. Well, us good Christian folk, we also have our church bucket. And I think a lot of times this is what life looks like for us when we say that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. We say, well, goodness, it's Sunday, it's church time, the church needs this, the church is doing this. And so I get in my church bucket and I love God with all that I am in my church bucket. And I put on my Sunday best and I put on my my Sunday, you know, smile and I come to church. And when I I come and I I worship God and I sit in my small group and I even serve at times when they need me to serve. And I I do this and I go throughout and I live out my church bucket. And then there comes a time in my week when, my goodness, I got to put on my work bucket. And I I don't really have time for the church side of things at this point. I got to do work because I got to make work happen. Bill's got to get paid. Boss is pushing, pushing his thumb down. All of these realities say, okay, I just need to function in work to survive and work, and God has no place in that because I'm just trying to make work happen. Then we get into our family bucket, and our family becomes the priority, and we love our family, and we do things for our family, and we want to just make sure our family is happy, and we do all of these things, and and what you see is you find yourself living these isolated silo realities of your life, And, and quite honestly, loving God is not thought about in any of these other buckets except for the church bucket. And what God is saying when he says, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, it also means all of what you do. And so instead of having these different buckets, really what it is, is taking all of those different categories, all of those different buckets, and putting it in a Jesus bucket that says, I love Jesus first and foremost with all that I am, and that infuses how I work, that infuses how I live out my life and my family, that infuses how I live as a husband or a wife, that infuses how I treat my grandkids, that infuses all Do you see the picture? It infuses how I go about my day at school. All of a sudden, our love for Jesus is demonstrated through our whole life. And people begin to see Jesus in us, not because we go to church on Sundays, but because we love Jesus with all that we are. People understand it and people see it. But here's the other aspect of the scope of this. He gives a second one. The greatest is love the Lord your God, but the second, he says, is like it. And it's what? To love others as you love yourself. Now, we don't have time to get into the full meaning of what it means to love yourself, but Jesus understands that you love yourself, so you ought to love people at least as much as you love yourself. But here's, I think, the bigger picture of the scope of this love relationship with God. You ready? If you're going to love God with all that you are, you're also going to love with all that you are the things that God loves. And guess what? God loves people. People. People are not your enemy. Do you understand this? Even if they have different beliefs than you, even if they have different backgrounds than you, even if they have different political ideologies than you, they are not your enemy. They are. People created by God for a loving relationship with him. And how else are they going to know about that loving relationship with him than for you to demonstrate what it means to love Jesus with all that you are, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. If you love God, you're going to love the things that God loves. Now, this brings us to number three. The foundation of our love relationship with God. You see, Jesus answers this when they say, what's the greatest command? When we hear the word command, we automatically think, I must do this. And we ought to. But the problem is, so many times, we are striving to to do this. We're we're striving in our own energy, our own ability to love God. In other words, I've got to manufacture this love for God, and quite honestly, you can't manufacture a love for God. Can I just tell you that? Some of you are tired of manufacturing this love for God and you feel so drained from it and it feels so empty and it feels so hypocritical in so many ways, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying conjure up the energy, conjure up the feelings, figure out how to go love God. Can I give you some scripture? John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, it says this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people, what, loved the darkness rather than the light. What does this mean? It means this, you are prone to love darkness rather than light, which means this, it's really hard to conjure up love for the light. Our sinful self loves darkness. Why? Because our works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We don't want to be exposed. So what is the foundation for love? What is the foundation for a love relationship with God? It's simple. It's this. God is love. What do I mean? First John chapter 4, verse 7, it says this. Dear friends, let us love one another, because what? Love is from God. Where's love from? Not from your ability to conjure it up. It's from God. And everyone who loves has been what? Born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is Love, what's the foundation for love? For our ability to love is God. Why? Because God is love. It doesn't say God does love. It's saying God is love. By definition, God is love. And this verse says the only one who's going to love God is the one who's been born of God. And that is taking language from Jesus when he's having a conversation in the dark with Nicodemus. And he says, oh, Nicodemus, you've missed it. You must be what? Born again if you want eternal life. That means you need to go from death to life. That means you need to go from darkness to light. And the only way that happens is when Jesus Christ gets inside of you and breathes new life through his Holy Spirit, making that which was dead alive. For if was in Christ, he is what a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. He's been born of God. So the foundation, our ability to love God, is not in your ability to demonstrate love for God. It's resting in the fact that God already loves you. Amen? And he has saved you, and he has transformed you, and he dwells within you, giving you his love. This is why Jesus says, anyone who does not remain in me can do nothing. The only ones who can do anything are the ones who remain in me, which means you can only love him when you remain in him. You might say, Pastor, listen, I, I hear you, but you don't know my past. There's no way that this God who is loved can love me. And I would say to you, I don't know your past. But I do know this. I do know that Jesus had an encounter with a woman who had five husbands, and the man that she was living with at that time wasn't her husband, and he sat down and had a conversation with her when no other man, no other Jewish man would do it. And he sits down, and he begins to have a conversation to get to know her and talk to her, and ends up transforming her life, where she becomes born again, and she's different because of it. I can tell you the story of a man who was a cheat who was a liar, who was a thief, who stole from people, who used his position as a tax collector to rob from common, everyday people. And I can tell you that Jesus saw that man and he said, hey, come down from that tree and I want to spend some time with you because I love you. And he spends time with that cheat, with that thief, and he changes his life where he's born again. And he's different. And all of a sudden, his ability to love is demonstrated because of God's love for him. I said, I don't know what your background is, but I know that Jesus knows your background. And you know what? He is waiting with open arms. And the reason he can wait with open arms is because he went with open arms to the cross. And the scripture says that as while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Meaning this, he died for you in your nastiest state that you were. And he saw it and he said, this is why I'm dying. And all that means is this, that you can come to him. That you can turn from your ways and you can turn from yourself and you can turn to him. And with wide open arms, he embraces you, not because you've cleaned yourself up enough to be embraced. He embraces you because he's already done it. He's already taken care of it. And he takes you as you are. And he says, let me take care of the rest. I've got you. I love you. Church, this is good news. The cross is the foundation. Listen, you can't love the Lord your God with all that you are until you understand that God loves you as you are. And then he changes you. And then he changes you. Here in a minute, we're going to partake of communion as a reminder. The scripture says that Jesus invites us to remember what he's done on the cross by participating in communion. But it also says that we need to reflect and we need to, um, I guess, maybe evaluate our own lives and our own hearts to see where we are in standing with God. Are we hiding from him? Are we fighting against him? Or are we um, submissive to him in a loving relationship? Over in Revelations chapter 2, verse 4, I believe it's chapter 2. The scripture says this. This is a word that was spoken to the church at Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, sometimes, church, we come to Jesus desperate because we know we're sinners. But over time, the things of this world distract us and we begin to love the blessing rather than The blesser. So the question is simple this morning. What does your love relationship with God look like right now? Would you just bow your heads with me as we reflect on this? See, the only way that you can have a love relationship with God is through salvation, as John said, that you must be born again. Maybe this morning you would say, I've been trying to force this idea of religion, and it just hasn't been working. Can I just ask the question, could it be because you don't actually have a relationship with God? It's just been intellect, it's just been information in your head, and it has not moved the 16 inches to your heart. So this morning, I just wanna invite you into a relationship with Jesus. He loves you as you are. The Bible says that if you believe that he's the son of God, And that you recognize that you are a sinner and admit that, that you can cry out to him and he will save you. This is not an intellectual crying out. This is a heart crying out, recognizing that you have no hope on your own outside of Jesus. And the scripture says that you will be saved. That can happen for you this morning. I invite you to call out to Jesus. There may be some of you who have accepted the Lord for your salvation and you've been born again but you would say and describe that maybe you've abandoned the love you had at first why what is it that's come before God what is it that's distracting you what are the excuses what are the things would you just be willing to lay that before him right now before we partake in communion Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.